3: Tonight we're delighted to welcome Linda Colley, authors of Acts of Union and Disunion, published by Profile Books, which examines the historical forces that have unified and divided the people of the British Isles. As you may know, Linda is also currently discussing these ideas in a series of broadcasts on Radio 4 in a series of the same name. In discussion with Linda tonight is Roy Foster, Carroll Professor of Irish History at Harford College, Oxford, who's written extensively on English and Irish history, including Modern Ireland 1600 to 1972. Just before I hand over, I'd like to say the talk will last approximately 40 minutes. There'll be time for questions afterwards, and I'll be around with the roving microphone, so please do get involved, put your hands up, and I'll do my best to get around everybody. Please join me in a very warm welcome for Linda Colley and Roy Foster. Thank you very much.
4: Well, Linda Colley is as distinguished an academic as you can find. She has... The honours, the prizes, more honorary degrees than you can shake a stick at. She's ricocheted between Cambridge, Yale, LSE, Princeton. Uh, she is the author of books that have broken the mould of British history, such as Britons and Captives, and major articles that one can only describe by that faintly unpleasant word, seminal um, she is also a public intellectual which academics in this country unlike perhaps in France and I might even modestly say in Ireland often aren't but that is what Linda is and in books like Captives like Britons like The Ordeal of Elizabeth March a particular favourite of mine She has opened up subjects that are relevant, uh, as relevant today as they have ever been. Slavery, which is now so much flavour of the month in films and other forms of communication, was in a sense re-established as a vital part of British history in Linda's book, Captives. She has always broken down barriers. She has always got the message across. And that's what she's doing in the series of radio programs and this book, which is cognate with them, um, which I hope some of you have been listening to with as much interest as I have. Um, And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The book couldn't be more timely because the questions at issue in it concern the UK, the United Kingdom, what it is what it has been and what it might be, what it implies and how it has changed and what perhaps might happen to it. And I'd like to start, Linda, by asking you to say in, let's say, one sort of paragraph what you're trying to do in this book.
1: Okay, well, hello, everybody. I should say, after an introduction like that, I'm rather tempted to depart so that I don't disillusion any of you after that Um, build-up. I want to thank the London Review of Books for hosting this event. I want to thank you all for turning up, making time for this. Uh, But I particularly want to thank Roy uh, for uh, agreeing to converse Uh, on these issues. Roy, who has written, I mean, he he very kindly said, I broke conventions, uh, nothing perhaps comparable to, uh, in the best sense, the deeply revisionist achievements uh, of Roy in regard not just to Irish history, Uh, But the relations between all these islands, uh, it's been radical uh, and vital stuff, which has changed history, helped to change history. Very few historians helped to change history. I think Roy has done so. Why did I write this book this way? Well, I suppose all books are a mixture of the author's self-obsession but also a desire to communicate and reach out and certainly so with this book and project uh, I was intrigued by unpacking some of the ideas that I'd been teaching quite literally for decades uh, but in a very compressed yet accessible form and and in a multimedia way doing it on the radio as well as on the text I'd never done anything like that before so I was intrigued by that possibility but the, the less selfish concern in writing this book was that I did hope that it would serve some kind of public service function I did want this to be an informational book to give people uh, who have other interests and other expertise some of the historical background, which I hope would allow them to understand and relate to issues uh, very much current this particular year, uh, w- would give them a, a better basis for that. Uh, the issues that I'm talking about are, of course, discussed a lot in the media. They're discussed by politicians. They're discussed by professional talking heads. But I am an academic historian, and I thought and hoped that I could bring something different and distinctive to the table. Uh, Because I do think there's very often an extraordinary level of lack of information. I, I I learned this a few years ago when I was a guest curator for an exhibition at the British Library, which um, somebody else, not me, called Taking Liberties. And it was about texts of freedom and constitutional rights in these islands. Um, and as we were planning the exhibition, uh, I, I said, well, it's, it's very important that we get all parts of these islands and all parts of the United Kingdom represented and someone said brightly, oh yes, yes we're, we're going to have all of Great Britain represented. I said no not not Great Britain the United Kingdom and I suddenly looked round the table and there was a sort of well, we said, haven't we, Great Britain? what's the problem? you know they, they didn't know these were people who were university educated, and many of them did not know there was a difference between Great Britain and the u k um if you don't know the name of your state uh you know there's there there are issues here, so it it was part i I do hope it provides interested people with useful information. But I also wanted to emphasize how much flux these islands had gone through in their organization. You, you, You get this line that, oh, this is an old country tossed out. Well, which part is an old country? I mean, which political formation are we talking about? Similarly, people talk about the union, but which union? Mm. There's the union between England and Wales. There's the union between England and Wales on the one hand and Scotland, uh, which is now in dispute. Uh, There's the most unfortunate union uh, between England, Wales, Scotland, Great Britain, and Ireland in 1800-1801, a union which is modified in the 1920s. And there's all sorts of other projected unions that I also talk about or at least refer to uh, in this book, uh, attempts to create a greater British union of the empire in the 19th and early 20th <coughs> century, for example. So I wanted to fill that out a bit and to, to coax people through the various changes and, and give them a sense of that. Um, And I suppose I was also slightly exasperated by the nature of some of the current political debate about Scotland and the forthcoming referendum. Uh, As I've written recently in The Guardian, it seems to me that so much of that debate has been very unimaginative, very binary, uh, with Scots being offered, on the one hand, arguments for independence, on the other hand, arguments why independence would be wrong and bad for them. Um, But nobody really, or not many people, are standing up, though I think they're now beginning to do so, interestingly, and saying, well, How about thinking of a revised kind of union? How about discussing different ways? If if these these parts of the current UK don't come completely asunder, how about thinking of some other way to organise them so as to revise it for the 20th 21st century in a more acceptable and interesting and appropriate way Um, these arguments are now beginning to revive um, particularly in Scotland where there's been a lot of discussion recently uh, about different kinds of federal projects Uh, but I think that more could be done to discuss these issues and so in the last chapter of this book Uh, I, I drop my historian's hat for a bit and start venturing in my doubtless, somewhat naive way and say, well, what about federalism? What about a written constitution? What about, if there is a federal system, not just having a parliament in Scotland, assemblies in Northern Ireland and Wales, but an English parliament? Uh, which is surely fair and right, and perhaps an English parliament that you situate in the north uh, as a way of addressing the north-south divide in England, which frankly I think is as severe uh, as any of the other divisions in these islands. So that was slightly longer than a paragraph. No, that worked. That
4: worked exactly as I had hoped it would because you raised some of the issues I think I'd like to come to later, which are about when you, as you say, take off your historian's hat and put on your, what I'd call your public intellectual's hat. Um, but I'd also like to bring you back to some of the historical moments when a, re, a reinvented or a reorganized form of united polity was floated and didn't happen, because there are moments, notably in the late 19th century when this happens. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to ask you, when you think, at what point and why do you think English nationalism became a subject? You know, 30 years ago, nationalism was generally assumed was something other countries had. It was for hot-blooded continentals or for (coughs) dotty Celtic people. The English didn't have nationalism. They didn't need it because they were so secure. All that has changed. And changed, I have to say, partly, or maybe it's a change you drew attention to in those early articles I mentioned, like Loyalty, Royalty. But now we have books about the Union Jack and its iconography. We have books about roast beef and what it means for English identity. And we have this book, which takes up the question of English nationalism. Why and when did English nationalism become a subject?
1: I don't think it just emerged out of nowhere Uh, I think as I suggest albeit in short compass in this book that yes you have this arrogant English characterization at one level of nationalism being someone else's problem uh, and the English know who they are Um, but you also have periods of really marked identity, um, marked anxiety. um, And the the one that I I suppose spent most time on in my career is the 1760s, when you get the appointment of the first ever Scottish prime minister. Uh, And this fuels or is used as an excuse for a really strong discourse about the importance of Englishness, how Englishness is being threatened and undermined by people on the continent, by Scots, by George III. Uh, so you've got uh, John Wilkes, who in many ways is indeed a radical man, but talking about uh, himself as a freeborn Englishman and the importance of Englishness. Uh, and you get all kinds of books saying, oh, we've got to get rid of Scotticisms from our language and get back to the purity of the English language. So you know, I don't I don't think uh certainly some of the manifestations of uh current uh Englishness, anxieties about Englishness are new. For example, um the the growing cult of uh, St George uh, You know, they, they now sell St George's Day cards uh, I don't think they did that even five, seven years ago uh, because it was thought as you say well <laughs> the Irish of course St Patrick's and the Scots but St George no, this is slightly vulgar we don't, we don't want to bother with him um, but, uh, but that's changed uh and I think that what is but what is also a complicating factor here are is not just that there's a kind of revived Englishness but the divisions within England uh not just between north and south, though I think that is a severe and growing division but also the way that different groups within the English population uh, prefer different nominal alignments. Uh, It is the case, as the last census established, which uh, asked people uh, what national designation did they most favor. Um, and you know it was shown yet again what various private studies had established earlier that if you are resident in england but come from an african or asian or caribbean background you are more likely to posit british as your designation rather than english so there's there's different interpretations yeah. of englishness dividing the population of England.
4: I think immigration and identity and anxiety are very closely linked here as they are at this current moment, too, and as they were, I think, in the late 19th century, which is one of those moments I want to take you back to. I was recently taking part in a radio discussion on um, George Dangerfield's book, The Strange Death of Liberal England, which I thought of when I was reading your book over this weekend because Dangerfield, as many of you will know here, tried to isolate a moment of fracture in liberal consensus before the First World War, which people had assumed was something that ended a glorious Indian summer of security. He tried to show that between 1910 and 1914, practically everything that constituted the expectation of a British polity was up for grabs and under stress. And one of the Issues he takes up, of course, is the question of home rule and Ulster's resistance to that, and the way that the idea of the union and indeed of Englishness was being queried. Um, this is also an era; that is also an era, the Edwardian era, roughly, when ideas of what was called home rule all round, which you mentioned in, in passing in your book, the idea that Wales and Scotland, as well as Ireland, could have their own assemblies and yet be part of a more loosely linked federated whole. Winston Churchill famously suggested an even wider range of units. Why were those ideas not taken further at that time? Are they eccentric notions that hadn't a part in the way the body politic was conceived? Or is it because the World War came along and reconstituted a kind of English-British identity in adversity?
1: These are at one level very well they are very good questions they also slightly unfair questions in that you know the answers much better than I do um, you know, this is the no, great Irish historian um, who has worked I'm talking on about
4: Scotland and Wales then, as well
1: <laughs> um, I think scholars have been very divided about that. You have uh, someone like Patricia Jalland who looks at these Home Rule All-Round movements and and, and for information, the Home Rule All-Round movement (coughs) did uh, uh, think either of uh, parliaments each in England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland, sometimes regional parliaments as well uh, with either Westminster acting as what was then an imperial parliament uh, a kind of umbrella body over all these countries or some reformers wanted a completely new imperial parliament which would indeed be an imperial parliament taking in representatives of all the British Empire so there would be layers and layers and layers of government that both kept the unit together, it was hoped, but also represented and uh, made gestures and and, and acknowledged the differences within the unit. Um, Someone like Patricia Jallan says, oh look, these ideas, they made a lot of noise, but uh, they're mainly partisan distractions. They're people like Churchill, who was obviously then quite young, uh, rather erratic, uh, all over the political spectrum. Um, Other people uh, are not particularly... uh, I mean, his scholarship is good, but someone like Vernon Bogdanor, who has studied the Constitution and the history of the British Constitution, so-called, really does think that... um, there was a serious possibility of some kind of written constitution emerging before uh, the First World War. He claims that papers he's seen in the Chamberlain uh, Archive in Birmingham suggest a a much greater degree of seriousness than um, some scholars have uh, suggested. But then, as now, there are certain problems. Obviously the the, the First World War swept a lot of things aside. Uh, There was the problem of trying to get consensus on any of these changes uh, and any attempt at constitutional innovation now would have the same problem of how you forge a consensus. Uh, And different partisan pressures. Um, And uh, The nature of the Conservative Party comes into play here, Uh, and it's an issue with Scotland and it was an issue with Ireland, that while many um, Conservative MPs in the late 19th, early 20th century were utterly opposed to Irish home rule, some were fairly blasé about it because they felt that Ireland gave aid to the liberal cause uh, that that somehow it would be quite good if Ireland somehow floated away, and they didn't, but they didn't want constitutional alteration within Great Britain itself. They wanted Ireland separated, almost off. Um, and of course, there's there's a, a strand of uh, the Conservative Party which thinks rather like that now that is actually not all that concerned about the possibility of Scottish secession uh, because, after all, how many Scottish parliamentary seats are left in Scotland? Um, And uh, there's the feeling, well, you know, separate them off. We, We then have a rump of the UK in which we will be the dominant partisan group and in which we can carry out the kind of uh, policies that we have long wanted to attempt. So that there are these partisan issues uh, it, it's, it, that are complicating um, uh, constitutional reform, uh, which, of course, is, tends to be the case
4: there's a surprising vagueness certainly when home rule is first drafted and floated and brought in as a bill in 1886 Gladstone makes up his mind at the very last minute as to whether Irish MPs would be retained at Westminster as well as having their own assembly or not it doesn't seem to matter very much to me. now it seems to us of the essence as to whether you have an imperial parliament with constitutive elements from the different parts or a parliament that only represents England um, it seems to me and I've, this is what I say when I t- teach it as well that if you want to see how Home Rule would have worked or not you look at what Blair tried to do in Scotland and I think that's a very good uh, sort of laboratory for what Gladstone's Home Rule Bill would have become in Ireland I think it would have been the first step on a slippery slope to uh, referenda for complete separation would you agree? <coughs>
1: I'm not sure. I suppose it it depends on whether you think home rule all round might have worked better Mm. than just home rule for Ireland. In other words, do you uh, see constitutional reform, as clearly Tony Blair did, as a way of almost bandaging sore sums we have a little local difficulty here, we have a little local difficulty there we will sort of address these local difficulties but basically the machine will go on fundamentally the same way or that was the hope Uh, or do you say uh, that there is a need for constitutional redesign um, for the union in general and that we have to Sit back and think about it and redesign it. Uh, it's very difficult for politicians to do this, of course. Uh, they have very little time. Uh, their tendency is to sort of just make sure the machine keeps running and you know. And, and there is, of course, a long historical and cultural tradition, uh, certainly at Westminster, that we need to bear in mind in these regards. Uh, uh, certainly from the late 18th century onwards uh, with the influence of the American Revolution, but particularly the French Revolution uh, and uh, the, the, the violence and, in many people's view, the anarchy that ensues from, these, from the French Revolution especially, uh, there's, there's a kind of Burkean view, if you like, that these rational schemes of government uh, never work that you've got to be more pragmatic, uh, and that the reason why the UK has avoided, this is what defenders of this view tended to argue in the 19th century, uh, the reason why the UK had remained powerful, hadn't collapsed in civil war, hadn't had the revolutions, the consecutive revolutions that somewhere like France had, was that... Britain didn't bother with a written constitution it didn't try and have a rational design for government it just ambled along and you know if it worked it worked and and you know apparently that's what Tony Blair's line was that you know he he, he got increasingly disillusioned with constitutional reform apparently um and and he kept saying apparently well you know the, the crucial thing is if it works, it works. Um, of course, the problem with that is that it's increasingly evident that it's not working. Um, and so perhaps we need uh, something rather more systematic and creative and imaginative. But um, That's what I see. want to
4: bring you on to at the end. But could I come back to some... You use a very nice phrase, I think more than once, constitutive stories of identity that are necessary to keep a kind of to keep the show on the road uh, you use you you illustrate this by individual lives as you do I think marvelously in captives and in Britons as well uh, but it's also the, the big constitutive story of identity which is monarchy. and I'd love you to talk a little about how that works and where that fits into the schemes of union. It's interesting that Scottish nationalists, for instance, will want to keep a monarch. It's interesting that um, some of the uh, strong challenges to republican separatism in Ireland in the early 20th century were ideas of dual monarchy, looking at Austria-Hungary as an example. Um, And I'd like you, just because this is something you have talked about, written about, brought back into the framework, the effective uh, story of monarchy in the construction of the United Kingdom.
1: Well, first of all, I would say that uh, that as constituted stories, and I, I stress that that nice phrase is not mine; it belongs to an American political scientist called Roger Smith, who who writes about identity issues and, and national organisation very cleverly. I think. Um, I think liberty stories are in some ways just as important uh, historically as the monarchy. But clearly the monarchy is essential. I mean, you've only got to think of the name of the state, the United Kingdom, uh, making quite clear that uh, officially uh, the monarchy is at the center of it. Also, of course, the monarchy was absolutely essential in imperial organisation. And I think the backwash of empire uh, on identity issues in these islands is enormous. And I'm not just meaning in terms of racial divisions. Uh, Now, partly because of fashions of historiography, when you talk about the impact of empire, people immediately say, oh, you mean race? Well, that's, that's part of the story. But the impact of empire is much greater than that. I think, for example, one of the reasons why uh, London governments have, and London politicians have often been cack-handed and uh, strangely diffident in talking about nationalism, um, is that they come from a tradition of, ruling an empire. Um, Empires cannot afford to devote too much thought to nationalism because they have to bring together an attempt to keep together different groupings, different religions, different national traditions. Um, The monarch was very important in that regard uh, because, at least in theory, and of course it was often only a theory, um, all subjects of the empire were on a par. They were all the subjects of the monarch, uh, and the monarch was not just the core of the United Kingdom. Uh, the monarch was uh, the centre of imperial, uh, the the British Empire, uh, the great focus of loyalty and attachment, the thing that made it work, the still centre. Um, of course as Alex Salmon has spotted um, and one of his many strengths is that he knows how to use history just as he knows how to deploy language uh, and he seems much more adroit in that respect than many um, other politicians at the moment uh, Alex Salmon recognizes that in historical terms Um, the monarchy does not mean that you have to have a united kingdom uh, because, after all, there was a union of crowns from 1603 uh, when James of Scotland came south uh, and became king of England and Wales and Ireland as well as Scotland. But until 1707, and another act of union Scotland was effectively autonomous it had its own parliament it ran its own show um, but it shared the same king with England, Wales, Scotland England, Wales, Ireland and in a sense uh, Alex Salmon has taken what seems to be what had seemed to be uh, the ace card from the unionists and said no, no, look at our history um, we can We we can have the monarchy, but we can be independent as well. It's Christmas. Um, uh, He's very good in that respect, but, you know, historically, I'm not saying that that will necessarily work, but you can build a historical argument Mm. to that effect.
4: I think that's extremely interesting and perhaps under-attended to. The other way, and I think monarchy is part of this story too, and it's something that I think you didn't have time to go into much, in the book but I'd love to just to um, riff a bit on how it uh, fits into your story is how empire segues or morphs into Commonwealth with a whole new set of rhetorics and a new set of images and a new set of, 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 of identities in a sense but is it just the same old rather specious binding cement going on or is it a genuinely new form of Policy.
1: What the Commonwealth? Yeah. Um. I think the Commonwealth can be quite useful, actually. Sure. I think right. it serves all sorts of purposes, uh, and many of those purposes are benign. Uh, and you know, I think whatever happens to these islands. Uh, it will be important to cultivate uh, a looking outwards. Um, you can-
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together.
3: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: You can't be Little England any more than you can be Little Scotland or Little Ireland. Um, so any of these connections and Uh, for good reasons as well as bad reasons. These islands have connections with many parts of the globe, and these connections should be cherished and nourished as much as possible. So uh, the Commonwealth is is, is an important part of the package. Uh, I do think it's arguable um, that... one of the unfortunate results of the apparent persistence of the Empire after the Second World War uh, because as I point out uh, on paper uh, the Empire reaches its greatest geographical size in 1945 uh, when Britain or the UK seems to recover territory from that had been conquered by Japan during the war uh, but also takes over some of the territories from Italy and other defeated powers. So on paper you've still got this this huge pink blobs across the globe uh, in the late 1940s and 50s Um, and combine that with the Churchillian notion of uh, the transatlantic union how important this was going to be uh, not just in peace not just in war but in peace Uh, and what was going on in continental Europe seemed very small beer. Uh, Whereas I think, and Hugo Young makes this uh, argument, that after the Second World War, Britain's reputation stood immensely high in continental Europe. Um, And that could have arguably been used to help conjure and Reconstruct a kind of Europe uh, that people in these islands would have felt more comfortable with, uh, whereas obviously the the EU has become uh, a, a running saw in a lot of uh, well, particularly English political debate. Less so uh, in Wales and Scotland and and the parts of Ireland. Um, so.
4: I'm glad you mentioned transatlantic because one thing I should emphasize is that this book is not just about these islands. Uh, there's a fascinating chapter on where the idea of a transatlantic, of an Anglo-American identity fits in to the notion of United Kingdom and indeed of British identity altogether. I'd also like to press you a little on islandhood, what you just said about those great pink blobs put against the kind of Uh, Romantic concept of the island story and the island race is I think a very interesting tension too but I'm acutely conscious we're reaching the end of our 40 minutes so I wanted before opening it to the floor to move just rapidly to what I mentioned earlier is where Linda stops being a historian (coughs) and takes on her public intellectual hat and makes forward projections which we're always told not to do as historians which is why a lot of history is so boring Um, but (laughs) I'd like you to forward project about the idea particularly perhaps of the need for a written constitution if that as I understand it is what you're saying in your last chapter but also about the future of the United Kingdom as currently constituted after next September
1: I think if the UK does survive in something like its present composition, if Scotland does not um, become an independent state, which it well might I think it's going to be very close, uh, then if we had a new federal UK, a written constitution becomes almost unavoidable because uh, you, you need some codification of the relations between the different levels of power and the different systems of rights. Um, I I, I am not dewy-eyed about written constitutions. Uh, I I have worked most of my adult career uh, in the United States, which has the most iconic written constitution, and by now it is desperately in need of... Renovation and reform. Uh, And you know, Jefferson, after all, suggested that written constitutions should be altered at least every 18 years. He did not think they could be enshrined uh, in the way that uh, they tried to do or have seemed to try to do in the United States. So I'm not dewy-eyed about written constitutions, but I think that they can be quite useful. I think the particular devolved rights or the rights of the different parts of a UK federation, you would need to be codified uh, to make people more confident that there were lines and systems and that they understood or could understand what these were. Uh, I do think one of the strongest arguments for a written constitution is that it allows or does hold out the possibility that people can find out how they're governed Uh, I mean if you you with the best will in the world if you want to know how the UK constitution operates where do you start you can't download it you can't get the text from the library Um, nobody really knows what it is I mean some judges. It it, it isn't that it's entirely unwritten, but it rests on such a bewildering array of legal texts and statutes that only a full-blown constitutional lawyer, if you're lucky, uh, would be able to reconstruct what it was. I I don't think this is acceptable. Uh, I, I think we need more than that. And a good written constitution is more than a car manual. Um, it can create a story. It can say this is what these groupings of people aspire to be. This is what we think the state we're in is about. Now of course trying to reach any consensus on that would be immensely challenging but when people say oh it's possible uh, couldn't be done we are the only democracy on the face of the globe without a written constitution are we really and truly so totally incompetent um, that, you know we uniquely cannot do this um you know, I, I i don't I, I just don't accept that um, of course it would need a great deal of political will and what you could argue is that the coming crisis or near crisis about Scotland, and I think it can be it's likely to be quite traumatic um, may perhaps may possibly frighten people into some kind of more constructive action because the reason why there is no written constitution here is not some peculiar uh, and distinctive national tray or habits. It's, it's, it's partly because of, apart from Ireland, outside of the island of Ireland, there has been considerable stability here Uh, no major wars lost since the late 18th century no civil wars uh, on the island of Great Britain since the 17th century Um, no revolutions Um, and therefore these things have have carried on Um, a shock to the system uh, might provoke constitutional change uh, if Scotland becomes independent, uh, Salmond has said he wants a written constitution. Uh, he's down in writing uh, saying that. Um, if Scotland does become independent and acquires a written constitution, what will happen to the rest of the UK? Uh, how will it be redesigned? Because, of course, it won't just be England that's left. Uh, there's an unfortunate temptation to sort among some commentators to say oh well it's Scotland and England well excuse me what about Wales mm. uh, I'm half Welsh uh, what about Northern Ireland uh, how are these going to fit into the picture uh, there's going to need to be constitutional reordering of some kind and it will be interesting to see what happens
4: at that Attractively decisive point, I think we can open it to questions. Helen, where are you The hands are going up all over the place. We'll, um, we'll start here. here. Okay, start the back and move around. But there's plenty around in this corner too. I must
5: <coughs> Thank you very much. Uh, my name is John Palmer. Just before I put the question, it's interesting that in my lifetime, uh, there was the British politicians, certainly during and shortly after the Second World War, use the word English and British interchangeably to mean exactly the same thing. Churchill spoke about our English empire and our English legal... It's just how interesting that it's that distinction was blurred for so long. My question, if I may ask uh, you to, on your public intellectual role, um, the dealing with the English dimension, do you have any thoughts about, not so much the northern dimension which I think is beginning to find its feet but what the hell to do about southern England meaning not least this city we live in and its specific weight within that polity I don't know if you have any thoughts uh, about that Uh, and uh, secondly if I could ask uh, Professor Foster just this question were Scotland to become independent what, if any, impact do you think this will have on the nature of unionist politics in, the, uh, in Northern Ireland? You go
4: first.
1: Yeah, I mean, the issue of London, it, clearly in some ways it's, it, it's a very old issue. William Cobbett, the late 18th, early 19th century radical, talked about London as the great when, uh, a sort of great growth on the body politic that was out of control um, but, of course, the disparity uh, between London and the rest in terms of wealth and population uh, is has just grown and grown. Uh, and in some ways, uh, the most logical place for an independence movement in these islands would be London and parts of the southeast. It would form a very rich... Uh, mini-state indeed. Uh, I think that uh, North and South need to be addressed together and that's partly why I did talk about the possibility of an English parliament in the North Uh, because you create then a different centre to London and in a sense, you go back uh, to much earlier patterns of government. Uh, medieval kings used York as their second capital, um, thereby doing duty to the north of their kingdom as well as the south. Uh, what you do about or what you ever can do about uh, the massive concentration of wealth in London, uh, and what you do about the decline of manufacturing which has left stranded the economies of lots part large parts of other parts of England I don't know I'm not an economist, but I think it you know this is, this is a real challenge there's no doubt about that
4: I should say I'm not here to take questions um, but <laughs> It seems um, Discourteous not to very briefly reply, but I, I'm not taking any more questions after this. If the import of the question is that an independent Scotland would make Northern Ireland look more to itself as a possibly independent unit, and Michael Ignatiev wrote fascinatingly about Ulster Unionism as a kind of nationalism in a very good book, also actually a TV series called Blood and Belonging, uh, that is one argument. I tend to think two things. First of all, I don't think Scotland will vote for independence. I'm, I'm less... Um, I probably disagree slightly with Linda on that. The other thing is that I think Northern Ireland's destiny is to be more closely linked to the Republic, and one of the tragedies of the last 30-odd years is that the border has become more entrenched rather than less, which is what many people hoped would be happening um, in the early 1960s, but which provisional IRA and others managed with a wonderful stroke of (laughs) hubris to to put a stop to by their activities in the 1970s. Um, So I'm inclined not to quite accept the implicit premises of your question on two counts, but I'd love to talk about it further if you're staying around later afterwards. Right, next question for Linda, and there's so many questions coming. If we could keep them as short as possible, that would be great. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Um, in in the anticipation of the referendum in Scotland there seems to me to be an assumption that um, we will have if Scotland votes for independence uh, broadly social democratic Scotland which I think is pretty plausible um, and that there will be a conservative England within the rump UK and I wondered uh, from an historical point of view whether you think that will necessarily be the way it might turn out I mean after all if the Rump UK um, is forced to finally confront the uh, late imperial pretensions of the of the former United Kingdom, stop relying on those rather lazy assumptions about Britain's place in the world. Um, might we not look back to an earlier precedent, say of the 17th century, when? really it was the Scots that were rather more conservative influence and after all save the monarchy we have the monarchy referred to as a a narrative for keeping the place together Um, and England might discover older rather buried radical traditions
1: It's possible um, and those scholars who think that and i don't think this because i think it's too neat but you know there is an argument that that what has polluted if you like england is two levels of empire the empire overseas and the empire here and that we really need to be just as we've been rolled back from our overseas empire we need to be rolled back from the celtic empire then we'll discover <laughs> our pure radical identity we'll 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 be clean again um, I'm not saying that's what you're suggesting but but some have suggested that it, it, it's you know, I, sorry I, I, I don't buy it um, which doesn't mean it won't happen uh, I, I have to say that this binary between a, a um, socially advanced Scotland and a quintessentially conservative England is propaganda uh, there are in fact a good many deeply conservative Scots Uh, and of course uh, as you say, I mean Scotland was very often seen in different times of history as a very conservative country, uh, either because of the power of its landowners or because of the supposed feudal traditions of the Highlands or whatever, whatever, whatever and of course the Unionist Party the Tory uh, party north of the border was for a long time very strong Um, So I think the politics of Scotland uh, are not necessarily what Alex Salmon sometimes maintains they are. What would happen in England and Wales and Northern Ireland if the Scots go away in terms of partisan complexion? uh, It would be interesting. I think it would take (laughs) Labour some time to recover. Uh, I think that uh, the Conservatives would get a greater degree of power for longer, but how long uh, I'm not sure because there could be all sorts of partisan reconfigurations following on uh, uh, the shock of Scottish secession if it happened. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I think there is a range of possibilities here. And I think it would be interesting to see what happened in the north of England in regard to an independent Scotland. Uh, We might then find that just as there's uh, alignments between Northern Ireland and the Republic, uh, there would be perhaps various political deals and cross-influences between the north of England and Scotland. Um, Given, after all, that you know, the the geography is closer there than than London. So I, I think it would be intriguing to see, but I I certainly don't think uh, it's going to be Conservative England one side and invariably socially advanced Scotland on the other. Um, I don't see it that way.
0: Yes, as a London's, uh, a border Scot who's lived in London for 40 years, I rather dread what's going to happen in September of this year. But I'd just like to ask you, do not think that this sort of new tribal identity that I'm much more aware of now has a lot to do with the lack of commercial independence. I grew up in Scotland with flourishing independent industries based in Scotland, but Scottish nationalism was a bit of a fringe intellectual thing now we've got hardly any commercial independence. Neither has England got so much commercial independence, but that seems to be counteracted by far more sort of tribal identity. And uh, could we not perhaps address that uh, a little bit in our discussion? Thank you.
1: Yes, I think you, you're bringing up a lot of issues there, uh, I mean, it's important to remember that the revival of identity politics is not peculiar to here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's taking place in a lot of parts of the world. And you could argue that, that you know, let's forget the local uh, forces for a moment uh, and talk about this collection of forces we call globalization. Uh, I mean it's interesting in the United States there's been a revival of calls for state rights I mean there's now a movement for Texas to become seriously independent again Uh, and you know you can see some of the reasons why people uh, are frightened and made uneasy by the feeling that Uh, great forces of capital and migration and the spread of ideas and technology are apparently just sweeping across the globe uh, seemingly wiping out the landmarks that they once valued and organized their lives in reference to Uh, and so in that context there is going to be a temptation, there has been a temptation to identity politics reviving with people saying well you know, we we're not sure about that, but but we we can be proud Scots, uh, and and we're going to reinvent what being a proud Scot really means. Uh, and I think you know the, the the people who are currently buying St George's cards and and, and and in some cases supporting UKIP are are you know part of the same phenomenon. Um, And and these are challenges that it's particularly apparent in Europe. They're not purely in Europe because all the European states contain uh, old national groupings or very strong regional groupings that have no state of their own. And what we're going to see increasingly, and you can see it in Italy and in France and in Spain as well as here is some of these uh, stateless national groups and cultural groups beginning to say we want a state of our own and, and how much how much of this kind of fragmentation how, how much do we go along with it um, and, and how can a constantly fragmenting Europe Uh, get its act together in a world where um, the initiative no longer rests with us.
3: I I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how, um, uh, how, to what extent Scottish nationalism and sense of national identity has been shaped by its relationship with England. Because it seems to me that when you look closely at Scotland... Um, and the many different sort of threads within its national identity the possibility that they could actually fragment quite seriously and that actually all that's held them together in a, in a kind of coherent way uh, has been something about its its kind of relationship with England and within Britain Great Britain um, because I'm sort of haunted by the South Sudan phenomenon which of course is not going to happen here in the quite the same way but everybody thought the succession of South Sudan was a excellent idea and of course the independence movement of south sudan for 30 plus years had masked the deep 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 sort of fault lines within the south sudan and i just kind of wondered to what extent you can see those uh, those fault lines seem very evident in scotland as well the highlands and the lowlands have very little in common for example
1: um i haven't been to scotland for a year I'm aware that situation and condition, there and, and debate there is changing so rapidly, so I'm, I'm probably to a degree out of touch. Uh, indeed, I am. Um, I think Scotland could be a perfectly viable independent country uh, because it has a considerable tradition of independence. Uh, it has its own legal system. Its own uh, traditions of education, um, uh, leaving aside economic arguments, its 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 religious history is uh, different uh, from that uh, of England. So there's the, you know, which doesn't mean that it 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 is. Homogeneous, of course, it isn't. the 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 Highlands and Islands have their distinctiveness, and and that's already beginning to emerge with arguments about, well, in the event of Scottish independence, who gets the oil? Um, with people from the Orkneys saying, well, you know, why should the oil in the sea round us go to Edinburgh because it's our oil? It's not Scottish oil; it's our oil. Um, so you know, there would be Fractures and, and and divisions there, uh, but I think that presumably this is in part why Salmon is talking about expedience, like a written constitution, and it is why he has tried, or the Scottish National Government has tried now. Uh, to do all sorts of initiatives, like there's lots more attention to Scottish Gaelic culture. Uh, You you see uh, railway signs in Scotland now uh, in uh, English or Scots, depending on what what you call it, and Scottish Gaelic as well. Uh, They didn't do that um, even five, never mind, ten years ago so uh, I, I think uh, salmon is trying to uh, adjust to these internal divisions within Scotland um, you know, I think it could work, but i'm not saying it will necessarily be easy
5: if Scotland, <coughs> sorry if Scotland doesn't choose independence, you've talked about the possibility of a federal uh, I don't know what it is, federal, Britain federal, whatever it is is there an example of any country in the world (coughs) that has voluntarily chosen a federal state in the last 50 or 60 years because I seem to get the feeling that countries split and they don't join
1: It's an interesting question I wish I knew the answer uh, it is how, there are, however, precedents for uh, countries that have been, um, you know, it's often said, oh, well, you, you only get rapid constitutional change or significant constitutional change after a crisis, um, if you've been defeated in war or you have a revolution or something like that. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. Canada uh, carried out a great deal of constitutional change. Uh, and produced a new constitution for itself uh, some time ago Um, that was quite a radical departure Uh, how far federalism a new kind of federalism was built into it I don't know, I haven't studied the Canadian constitution Uh, but it is an example uh, and um, (laughs) though this is hardly a federal system Iceland is another there are countries which are rolling along reasonably okay which then decide well you know perhaps we should do something a bit differently yes and certainly federalism there um, yeah
4: okay,
3: we have time for one more, one yeah, more and somebody need to let someone towards the back have a go
5: what do you make to the argument that that effectively, for all the bell- bells and whistles and, and, and the flags, that fundamentally the, sorry, the fundamentally the union between England and Scotland is instrumental, and that both countries went into that with that in mind. So you could turn around and say the union of the crowns was to double down on the refer- Reformation. You then have the union of the parliaments in order to benefit, f- you know, from f- the first great wave of international international trade. And then in the, 18th, uh, I- in the 19th and 20th, early 20th century, it was about procuring the ben- benefit, imperial, imperial benefits. So the union always had a purpose. To you as a public intellectual now, what is the purpose of the union today?
1: Well... I think there are various purposes of the union, uh, though it depends on your assessment of the EU, I think. Um, If the EU was what some of its opponents accuse it of being, a kind of empire on the make, uh, a great uncontrollable mega power... um, In some ways, my feeling is that in that case, different European countries could fragment quite happily because you would have the EU as an overarching imperial power uh, presiding over them, keeping them safe with the great EU army uh, and navy uh, and central bank and so forth. But as we know, the EU is, at the moment, not a very happy ship. Uh, and I say that with no pleasure. Um, I, I would like the EU to to work much better than it does. But you know, one of the reasons that you might want to keep a union is the fact that the world is a dangerous place. Uh, you do need to think about things like armed forces. You do need to think about... Uh, big challenges that are going to increasingly come, like uh, what do you do about climate change? What do you do about water supply? Uh, how do you both allow immigration but somehow try and sort it out? Um, how does, uh, do these declining states and all states in Europe are in relative decline, how do we compete against a resurgent Asia? How do we hold our own? Um, And you could argue that in this kind of uh, fractious and challenging world, uh, the arguments for union are still there. Um, You know, you you keep each other warm. You keep each other safe. Uh, Now, some would dispute that, but it seems to me quite a potent argument for union if you want to make it. But again, you know, I stress uh, if the EU really does at some point get its act together, then um, that prudential argument for union is becomes less powerful. Uh, and I do think that if uh, the euro had worked more successfully than it seems at present to be doing uh, and was forging away. Because remember, a few years ago, people were saying, oh, you know, the euro is going to take over from the dollar as the world's best and most powerful currency and it's going to be great. Um, had that really happened and, and the EU been you know, absolutely effulgent and massively powerful and growing... Uh, then the Scots, Scots, Scottish nationalists would be in a much stronger position in some ways. Uh, I think the, 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 the problems of the euro have been a problem for Alex Salmon also.
4: Well, Linda has characteristically fanned out a whole range <laughs> of questions to leave you gagging to ask more, but uh, we've worked her very hard and I think we'll have to stop now. I'd like to repeat her thanks to the hospitality of the wonderful LRB bookshop and to Profile books. And to say that this book is full of stuff. I expected loads of questions on Europe. It was nearly all Scotland, but there's lots of stuff in there. There's Europe. There's paradoxical quizzical um, issues. There's a delectable quote from Mrs Thatcher saying she always felt most at home when she arrived in not Finchley, but Luxembourg. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving aside what kind of person leaves most at home, and feels most at home whenever they arrive in Luxembourg, this is a scholar who is clearly at home almost everywhere across the subjects she's treated with. If a good uh, uh, written constitution is more than a car manual, so is a brilliant piece of history writing, and that's what this is. So I'd like you to thank her very much, to stay, and to buy the book. Thank
0: you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.